If I made a drawing, I never felt like it was complete. But when I did it through a printmaking process, when it came out the other end, it kind of felt like it had been removed from my hand in a way and gone through this process and it felt kind of complete, ready to be shown potentially in a gallery. Hello, print friends, and welcome. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Sembrano. Together we speak with people around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, currently offering possibly the best thing to happen to relief printmaking, their Woodzilla Presses. Beautifully made in the Netherlands, these uniquely engineered presses perfectly combine superior craftsmanship and performance at a price that makes them accessible whether you're a seasoned printmaking pro or new to the craft. Available across five sizes, each Woodzilla press precisely manufactured from heavy-duty steel and designed to apply uniform pressure without undue stress or work for the artist while still guaranteeing a beautifully printed result at every reveal. Check out these beauties through the link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion Paper is a fine art paper company that represents the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it, with brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more. Legion is the best paper resource for every artist's and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of papers Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. My guest this week is Kalina Stasiak. We talk about her great-grandmother's quilting practice, Victorian death rituals and what we can learn from them about our own contemporary grief journeys, Quakers and Shakers, and women of wrestling. Hi, Kalina. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's really nice to see you again. I feel like we had a wonderful Rocky Mountain... <laughs> I, was, I, had, I heard someone call it once the Rocky Mountain print militia. Um, And I always want to call it that now, but it's the Rocky Mountain Print Alliance Conference in Spokane. Mm -hmm. And I got to see your work in person, I think for not the first time, but like the most recent time and just was really charmed and interested in it. And so I'm really excited that you agreed to come on and talk to me about it. Yeah, thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm nervous and excited. And I actually had a dream last night that we were doing the podcast, but we were getting more and more drunk. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't remember what we talked about in the dream, but I do remember being like, we probably shouldn't have been drinking while doing this. We were like, probably shouldn't release this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's really, that's really funny. It reminds me a bit of I don't know if you remember Drunk History. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a a phenomenon in the early noughties, um, in the early days of content creation. So, yeah, that's that would be its own uh, its (laughs) own version of Hello Print Friend. (laughs) The X-ray version. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, we'll we'll see if even Stone Cold Sober we can say anything we regret today. Yeah. So before we we take on that that lofty and and prestigious goal, would you introduce yourself and let people know who you are, where you are, what you do? 
So I'm Kalina Stasiak, and I'm currently in Oxford, Mississippi, in my office that also kind of functions as a studio in at the University of Mississippi, which is also where I now teach. I just started teaching here this August, finally got my dream job as an assistant professor of printmaking. And so, yeah, it's been my first semester here. It's been a lot of work, but I feel like I learned a lot and accomplished a lot. And I'm excited to see, yeah, what else (laughs) happens this year. So it feels like it's been like really fast, but also really long. But yeah, It's been a good experience. And before this, I was at Valdosta State University in Valdosta, Georgia, which is like really, really South Georgia, close to the Florida border. And there I was teaching printmaking and foundations in a visiting position. So full time, but not tenure track. And then before that, I was at the University of South Alabama in Mobile, Alabama in another visiting position. And then before that, I did my MFA at the University of Georgia. But I'm from Canada. So oh, uh, wow. for the, the past seven years, I guess that's basically my, my seven years in the southern United States. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say from Canada, like right into the deep south. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow I haven't tried to stay in the South because I've definitely applied to jobs elsewhere, but I just keep getting hired by institutions in the South. And I feel like every time I get or interviewed somewhere, they're, they're kind of like, oh, you're from Canada. They're, I feel like I met with somebody here who was just supposed to kind of like acclimatize you to the South. And I was like, oh, no, like I'm, I'm going to here for a while. I know what it's like. <laughs> I am so curious to know what that would mean yeah. that somebody would be this Southern American culture whisperer or something like that. Yeah. Because I was like, what questions do people usually ask you and I think a lot of it was about like politics yeah because that definitely comes up a lot (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and then also yeah I don't really know culturally I mean there's some things that are different culturally but Canada I feel like is very similar to the U.S. in culturally maybe not politically but Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I never really felt there was a little bit of culture shock, but you know, I was kind of accustomed to certain things. My my brother and sister in law, who are both philosophy professors, lived and worked in Mobile for a long time, oh. and I went and visited them a few times. And being in a progressive space like a humanities department or an arts department is such a different experience, at least for them, and at least as I observed it. Being in Mobile as opposed to being in, say, Seattle, where I did a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel like universities are, yeah, these safe, progressive spaces. So even depending on where you are, of course, in the state or even within the city, it does feel different and Mm -hmm. you do encounter different people. So I've never really been afraid to talk about certain things, especially in the classroom, because I did feel like I was surrounded by people who agreed with me, which I don't think, yeah, depending on the space that you're in would not be the case. But being in a university institution, you do kind of feel like 
uh, yeah, that you're surrounded by like-minded people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd love to talk maybe a little bit more about the experience of being in Mississippi and how it circles back into your artistic practice. Because I feel like a lot of elements of culture and femininity and expectations are threads throughout your work. And I feel like Mississippi and Alabama, like that's when you have like coming out parties and balls and like this really, really interesting performance of femininity as well. So we can like put a pin in that and maybe get a little, a little more background and then kind of circle back. Cause that's interesting. And I've always, yeah, been interested in, even when I was in Canada, craft and mm. femininity and women's work. I think starting with my great grandmother sewed a lot of quilts. And I actually have this series, I have a lot of her quilts, and I have this series of photographs that is of her in the same position, mm. different quilts that she had made. And I, I think when I was a little baby, beginning artist. I went to the Ontario College of Art and Design in Toronto and just starting to figure out what it was that I wanted to make and the artists that I gravitated towards. Because of course, in the beginning, I feel like I was really enamored with Vincent van Gogh and this idea of the artist, which was usually a male. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then so when I figured out, I had taken some feminist theory classes that these quilts could actually be considered art, even though they were a functional object that served a purpose in the home or even a decorative purpose. That was kind of when I started to feel like excited about making work and that I was kind of on a trajectory that was my own. And so a lot of, I mean, my work is still inspired by quilts, but in those really early days, it was, yeah, a lot of looking at designs of quilts and, mimicking it through printmaking because I mm. thought to me printmaking was this kind of mechanical means of making work and that I guess comparison of the handmade with the machine made even though it is still handmade and then I was always I started looking at Victorian morning rituals and craft oh. so that's kind of segued to that and I think it was maybe through discovering hair wreaths I just mm-hmm. loved looking at those and then hair jewelry and um, yeah, all the kinds of strange things that they made as a way to mourn and deal with grief. So I kind of segued into that. And a lot of it was always looking back at the past. So when I went to grad school, I was still making work about mourning rituals and craft and looking back, I guess, at this kind of British history and they were like well think about where you are now you're in Mm. the south and there's a lot of interesting history here so that's pushed me out of the studio and into (laughs) into the south I guess looking at museums of course the civil war history was a big thing so I was going to civil war reenactments I love going to historical houses and just again because I really love domestic objects and things in the home and I became really interested in in the objects that were telling these stories 
in the museums and in the historical homes and even in the historical reenactments. Because after doing a little bit of research about that, I found that there's like the kind of two kinds of historical reenactors. There's like the farbs and then (sighs) the hardcores. And the hardcores are people who try to get everything historically accurate down. There's people who weave cloth to like the standards of the time and they would only use that cloth and then the farbs were the ones who would eat fast food and would kind of hobble together these items but I just loved like going to the reenactments and looking at all of these objects they had that were kind of telling a story and so that those objects are kind of what filtered into my work but then always still thinking about domesticity and the home and how yeah the objects that we have tell a story about ourselves or national identity as well. What do you think was it about morning rituals that captured your attention? Because for me, that is fascinating. I remember being interested in it from a young age. I was absolutely a late 90s little goth baby and I wore the most raccoony eyeliner and I had pink and white hair and fishnets and like all of that feeling like that Victorian relationship with death was so beguiling Mm -hmm. but I think now that I'm older there's a much more serious emotional element of it you know as you get older and you start to understand what loss is what loss really feels like and the frequency at which loss was experienced during that time period. Because it was also a form of women's work. And that that might be how I navigated towards that in the first place was it was just something that they, in addition to making quilts and making rugs and making napkins, then they were making these objects that, yeah, commemorated people's lives and just thinking of them working at home with human hair instead of um, actual thread. And yeah, that, I guess that, that way of processing grief and also the amount of time thinking about how long it took them to make them and how they were allowed that time to grieve and mourn. And then there were all those, I mean, it maybe got taken to an extreme, but there were all those Uh rules about how long you had to wear black for. And it actually became a kind of commercial endeavor where I think they had these warehouses of morning clothes and it was seen as indecent if you worn in your morning clothes for a certain amount of time. But it was also, yeah, that they were allowed this time to grieve and mourn, which I feel like nowadays we're not. And there's been like lots of conversations about how, especially in the U.S., you get, I think, like three days off or something. Mm -hmm. There was I think I get five. Okay. Through my, my, I work at a university, so we get the real top tier (laughs) (laughs) benefits. So yeah, five days to, to, to take. Yeah. And it's like, that's how much it just feels like they're telling you that that's how much it should take before you're ready to come back to work. So I, I kind of admired that they were allowed and even, yeah, it was promoted to take this time to not only grieve, but to also make these objects that would remind them of the people who had passed. I also, I loved all these little needlework designs that were by young girls who were learning to embroider. Mm -hmm. That would be these 
um, sayings that were contemplating their own mortality because there was just death all around them. Their life expectancy was maybe up to 30 years old. So I feel like just from a young age, they were surrounded by it and it wasn't strange or morbid for them to like think about joining God in heaven. Mm -hmm. I was imagining these little 13-year-olds sewing a pillow and how in stark contrast that is again to young people today, how death feels very separated. People die at the hospital kind of Mm -hmm. way rather before it was in the home. A big symbol that I liked to use a lot in my work as well was the bed. Um, And I, in between undergrad and grad school, I made I had a, a exhibition at a printmaking studio and gallery in Toronto called Open Studio, and um, I made this light box bed, and then this quilt out of etchings that was put on top. And they were all kind of thinking about birth and death, and then also like sleeping and waking, which mm. feels kind of like every day we die and then we. <laughs> wake back up but that the bed was this place where kind of these transitions in life took place yeah I think that idea and that very common presence of birth and death in the house is something that and the kind of removal of that from the way we live now it just doesn't seem healthy (laughs) to me having recently lost my own father and experiencing a kind of next level grief, right? Like I've lost grandparents who were amazing and I was close to them and they were inspirations. But I think for better or for worse, grandparents kind of take this place in society where it's like, well, grandparents die. Like that's yeah. fine. <laughs> but like, But like parents, siblings, children, they have this kind of almost eternal aura about them that they, that seems like they could kind of be untouchable. So really experiencing a real life-changing kind of grief and overlaying what you're saying on my own experience of what would it be like if I had had all of these rituals, particularly mm-hmm. in the first months of what, what am I embroidering? What am I wearing? I think sometimes even like, what are you eating? I I don't know if that was Victorian culture, but I know other ones have been like, you can't have anything spicy or something. You know, it's like all about keeping things very calm in your body and that thing. And and would that feel really comforting because it would be a playbook in a new world that you don't know how to navigate and and you really need time. But until you figure it out, if somebody was just telling me what to wear, yeah, (laughs) like that could have been easier simplifying things yeah in terms of what you're eating what you're wearing and what you should be doing so that you can really focus on what's happening emotionally Mm -hmm. and so you mentioned that you got into print because you found that connection to your great-grandmother's quilts is is that mechanical production and but it stayed with you throughout your practice even if you've moved beyond quilts and it's not the only aspect of what you do. You know, you do woodworking as well and, and many other things. But why do you think print has remained in your practice and an important part of what you do? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I think what I feel like I the other work that I make too, like the sculptures, 
I make them thinking like a printmaker. And there was something, actually, when I was an undergrad, something about printmaking that whenever I was a drawing and painting major at first, and then I just felt like I wasn't learning anything because I went to this really kind of conceptually heavy school and Mm. they they weren't really teaching you how to mix color or I kind of really wanted these like basic foundations that I felt like I wasn't getting for whatever reason and they were like here's a concept paint it and I was like but I don't know how to paint (laughs) (laughs) and then I took a printmaking class and I was like oh I'm learning something I'm having access to this equipment and these machines and these processes that I would have never been able to do outside of school. So I think it was kind of more of a pragmatic thing. And maybe coming from, like, my father worked as a, like, pipe fitter, plumber in a factory. Mm. My mom was a nurse. So I was going to art school and I felt like I maybe needed to, like, prove that I was learning valuable skills. And I also kind of always knew I wanted to teach. So I felt like printmaking was something I was learning something that I could also pass on. And then I, I loved the way that if I made a drawing, I never felt like it was complete. But when I did it in through a printmaking process, when it came out the other end, it kind of felt like it had been removed from my hand in a way and gone through this process. And it felt kind of complete and more ready to be shown potentially in a gallery afterwards. So there was something about that, that disconnection from me that made it feel complete. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah. I do love process because I do love craft and quilting and embroidery and things like that. So printmaking in a way also there's so much process to it that maybe that's also why I gravitate towards it. It feels like something that I can teach. Like, I don't think, I don't know if I should be in a sculpture studio teaching sculpture. <laughs> um, but maybe it would be interesting because uh, I, I do love when people in who have kind of certain other mediums as their specialty try out a new one. Because I, yeah. I started approaching sculpture. My friend who's a sculptor was like, I had these ideas for things I wanted to make. And she's like, it's interesting because you don't. I don't have any of the hangups that mm-hmm. sculpture I don't know how to make things. So I, I can imagine things and then ask someone how to make it rather than be like, oh, well, you can't do this, this, and this, so you can't make this. I could always come in and be like, I want to make this thing. How do we do, <laughs> do it? And like, you don't, yeah, you don't really understand how sculpture works. So you don't, you can imagine things beyond maybe what a sculptor Yeah, I've heard of that from collaborative printers too. When they bring in someone at Crow Shadow or something who's never made a print before, the artist will just have this really open mind because they haven't been trained in the ways of printmaking. So they don't know, like, that's not done, (laughs) you know? Which is really frustrating, but then also could push you to, yeah, try and modify a process to create that look and maybe create a whole new process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm always curious when people are making work about, I don't know if like harder things is the right word, but just work that is maybe examining some of the darker elements of life. What reaction do you get in shows and that thing? Like, do you have people immediately wanting to come and tell you, 
about death that they've recently experienced, like I did. I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm in grief. Hello. <laughs> you know, here's because that's that's part of what being in grief is, right? Is 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 it just kind of pours out of you. But do you get that a lot? Do you get people who kind of have to like, oh, why why would you make a coffin house? <laughs> or that kind of yeah. thing. Um, yeah, definitely both of those. I did have somebody once be like, Are you in mourning? Like, why are mm. you work about this and I was like I'm just I find it really interesting and I think the work itself I don't think is necessary necessarily I mean it's obviously not gory or anything like I feel like in the service it's like pretty and then I like work that when you look at it again yeah you're like oh it's a house and you're like but it's in the shape of a coffin Uh now I'm I looked at it because it looked nice. And now I'm like thinking about these other kind of darker things. So I like something that is, and I think it's surprising these things that are super like very feminine, but then when you look a little harder can be kind of gross or Mm -hmm. weird or dark. So I think, yeah, that's just kind of an approach that I like when I'm looking at work and then something I think about when I'm making my own. But yeah, I do. I like that it brings out those stories because I'm not sure that I'm always expecting it because mm. I because I'm really interested in it. And then but of course, it does come along with people thinking about or people who are in mourning and perhaps, yeah, wanting to dig deeper into those mourning rituals and maybe adopt one of them <laughs> to help. Them. Yeah, it's it's funny. And, you know, not not to make the, the whole podcast about <laughs> my grief journey, but <laughs> Like in the months right after my father passed, I was like, I fucking have to knit. And I just was like, I just was like on all these knitting websites and I was buying these sets of needles that were like 20 different sizes with different strings and all these different things. And it just was this, I just thought about it so much. And I wonder if there was something about the repetitive nature of it. And that maybe some of the crafts that historically women would use to to process is some of that too, because I am not a great knitter. So I am like, I am like knit one, pearl two across the board. Like I'm not, I'm not fucking with colors. Like, so it is very repetitive for me. You know, it's, it's not, I'm not keeping track of stitches or anything like that. More mm-hmm. like for the most part. So keeping your hands busy. Yeah. And, and at least it's in the contemporary side of it as well. It had this effect where I couldn't be looking at my phone Mm. and it, it, it literally like was a break from the digital aspect of everything you're dealing with, with passing in -hmm. in this day and age. So, yeah. Cause that always makes me think of this scene from a tale of two cities by Charles Dickens, where everyone the women and everyone are starving but in order to kind of stave off that hunger they're always knitting mm. it's just a bunch of women who are just always knitting and like they talk about the sound of the needles clicking as a way to yeah just kind of not think about their hunger so I think about that a lot in terms of yeah craft or or trying to not think about these kind of larger issues but as a way to to keep busy and it's so interesting it re- it reminds me of a, a colleague I had in art history whose name is Bevan Butler. And she wrote a lot of research around nuns in the medieval period and their weaving. 
And the weaving is a spiritual practice as a way to kind of leave your body. And so whether it's grief or hunger or just trying to detach from the body world, get into the spirit world, Mm -hmm. the repetitive craft that again is for better or for worse, often sanctioned as women's work, women's craft. It's, it's, it's a theme. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I love the shakers so much. Um, Cause I did have shakers questions on my <laughs> list, so I'm glad you brought them up. So please go ahead. Just cause it feels very much like that is where making becomes, yeah, this kind of religious experience and that the objects they make, I feel like are not meant to have any embellishment. I think there it's like the hands to work, hearts to God, and just that, yeah, kind of higher, like just kind of adding this element of religion to making. Because I feel like making, there's people who just need to make. And so attaching that to religion, I think is, yeah, just such a fascinating uh, subject. And I think there's a lot of philosophical through lines between the traditional Christian idea of God as a maker, as Mm -hmm. a creator, and then this idea that we are his children and are made in his image and that therefore our creation Mm -hmm. is holy. I think that was something that even Michelangelo believed in. I mean, you see it throughout people writing and working through this idea of spirituality and making and holiness and, and all of that. Yeah. And the shakers, one thing I really love about the shakers too, is that they thought that the second coming of Jesus was a woman mother. Oh. And yeah. And so like, there's, it's a very egalitarian society. Cause I was like, can you imagine like, this is so progressive. And I feel like we don't hear about that mm-hmm. enough there is this sect that believe that the second coming was a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and this is my ignorance. And so maybe you can correct me on it. Are there still sh- shakers around practicing shakers? That's a good question. I think so. Okay. Cause I know there are a lot of Quakers who are kind of a close cousin yeah, yeah, to yeah. the shakers. And I'm up here in, upstate New York and in Quaker countries. So you do see it some there, but yeah. Actually, maybe this is something we should research too, but I do think that the Shakers went extinct because they weren't allowed to procreate. I remember that too. It's so funny. It's so funny that I don't know. Yeah. Maybe if we should, we should look it up or something, but I was actually in the car with Tim the other day, my husband. And, and I brought that up. I was like, I swear some class when I was learning about early colonial religions told me that the Shakers just believed in no sex. So it was like, it didn't matter if you're married, it didn't matter anything. It just, so they kind of went extinct where the Quakers, which was a really close evolution of it, didn't, didn't have that strict of, of ideas Mm -hmm. around it. So I think I remember reading that the only children that were brought into the Shaker communities were because they would kind of adopt these single mothers who mm. for a reason had separated from their husbands. And that was the only way that new children were brought into the community were by people who already had kids, <laughs> which is so sad because it's like, oh, man, like you were a part of your own extinction. Like, maybe- yeah, you were you were like an egalitarian progressive 
form of Christianity. Why did you guys have to stop having babies? (laughs) (laughs) But the objects are so beautiful. This past summer, I went to... Was was it this past summer? No, two summers ago. I was in the summer exhibition in the... Do you know what Wasaic is? Um, No, I don't think so. It's this... It's outside of New York um, in Wasaic. It's a small hamlet, like, close to Hudson. But it's this old grain elevator that was turned into a kind of contemporary art gallery and they have residencies there as Mm -hmm. well and yeah it's just a really awesome space and close to there there's the this shaker museum and then there's also a kind of the i went to the shaker museum there's another shaker i think not reenactment but kind of a living history place but just being able to go through the shaker museum and look at all their objects and even their hand lettering Mm. is so beautiful and just the it's like the attention and the detail that goes into everything everything was like functional but also beautiful and I think again it just stands in contrast to how many objects we have Mm. (laughs) how if we don't like something we can just get rid of it it's like they made everything and everything was important and had a purpose and had a role yeah gosh I would love to be able to tap into that mindset because (laughs) I am maybe ashamed to admit I am absolutely one of those people that if something is under a certain value and I bought it online and it's like doesn't doesn't fit in my bathroom right where I thought it was going to go. I'm like, I'm not going to return it. Like I'll just like get rid of it because (laughs) things are just so consumable and disposable and you buy them online and then they just show up at your house. And, and of course there's like a huge conversation we had about like the invisible labor and all of that and the conditions that people who are working at Amazon and working in factories and that thing that are just totally anathema to the tradition you're tapping into of of, of careful, precise, beautiful work that then imbues a preciousness in the consumer as well, I think. And kind of the way that the objects also spoke to, yeah, how like their identity and what they believed in. Mm. I recently learned, and maybe you knew this because you're moving in these thought circles more, but I recently learned that James Terrell is a, Qua- a Quaker, Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, and he's got really interesting talks about light and Quaker spirituality. And I was like, I just thought he always wore black because he was an artist. Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and, and so that, anyway, just interesting kind of idea of minimalism and at least within, you know, his work it's this idea of like go inside to find the light within anyway, just kind of like throwing this out there in the maker artist, Quaker shaker spectrum of, of ideas. (laughs) And they do feel like religious experiences Mm -hmm. when in them as well. Yeah. They, they feel like cathedrals and, and it's just like a cathedral I find that I get really angry if someone's talking too loudly in them. Like they just, they, they feels like you shouldn't be doing that. How come you shouldn't be doing that? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I, I want to make sure 
that in all of this, not to take a hard right, but we get to talk about Southeast women wrestlers. Yes. <laughs> SCWW. <laughs> We'd have to all be so dark. <laughs> yeah. we. Um, which I feel like I got to experience maybe a taste of this firsthand mm-hmm. at the aforementioned Rocky Mountain Printmakers Alliance conference in Spokane. You and Cammie and Edie mm-hmm. had a interactive art event at the end of the conference, which I think just will go down in history. <laughs> Uh, It was called Printmakers of Wrestling, but it was set up like a a wrestling ring. It was beautiful. It was it was it was one of the most fun experiences I've had in a very long time. But I would love to hear you talk about Southeast women wrestlers and how did that start and where does your interest come in it and does it intersect with all that the heavy, beautiful morning crafting shakers light death all of that or is this just something that is just another side of you and what you do no wrong answers <laughs> yeah, I don't know. so it started when I was in grad school I worked for the gallery and you could propose exhibitions and a lot of people would just propose their own work and I was like I can do that but I kind of want to do something different and there is well, there was a League of Lady Wrestlers from, mm-hmm. it had started, I think, actually in Dawson City in the Yukon and then had been in Toronto. And it was the same thing, these performers kind of exploring aspects of femininity. And I really wanted to bring them down to Athens to have an event and then have a gallery ex- exhibition of the ephemera from the event. But they were doing their last show. And I spoke to the um, person who started it there, Abin O'Grady, and she was like, but we're encouraging people to start their own leagues. And they have... There was supposed to be a book. I don't know if it ever came out, but basically kind of like a kit to start your own (laughs) women's wrestling league. So I got a lot of information from her about how to do it. Because in the beginning, it was kind of like, is this something that I really want to take on? Mm -hmm. It was my last year of grad school. (laughs) This is not my thesis, but it's something I want to do. And I started talking to people about it to kind of gauge interest. And it turned out that there actually was a lot of people interested. And so I recruited people from the printmaking area and like across the art department. I was taking, again, some feminist theory classes. So I recruited from there and then kind of by word of mouth throughout the Athens community. And I I really think that it's because it was in Athens that it was so successful because the community was so supportive. Um, mm. And so we, ha- for me, the goal was always the exhibition, but we all had to have an event, of course. So we, we went to wrestling training. Wrestling's actually oh, kind wow. of really huge in Georgia and in other areas of the South as well. So we were, we went for this kind of wrestling workshop and we had created our characters and then paired off based on who we thought could have a beef. And then we we didn't know wrestling moves or anything. So we went to this, it was in 
think it was in Royston. We went to this wrestling ring and we're like, can you, they basically looked at our skits and helped us kind of come up with moves and showed us how to do moves safely. Cause of course that was <laughs> a big thing is safety. Yeah. Let's create our sketches. And then one of my friends had, was renting this beautiful pecan grove. So we were going to have the event there. Of course, being a printmaker, I made all these posters. And I just love that we just had so many different people from areas of the art department that kind of came together. It was like perfect for a huge collaborative event. People were doing our makeup. People were taking photographs, documenting the event. And then we just invited people. We didn't know how it would go, but it was literally packed. People were like dangerously parking on the side of the road (laughs) um, to get to the event. And then there was, after the event, it was kind of like, oh my God, I'm so happy that's over. And people were like, we want more. (laughs) (laughs) And so we did actually two more events that semester, one in the art school in the atrium. And then another one for, there's an event called Lilith Fair. Uh Uh-huh. Was it Lil or maybe it- Chillith Fair? Yeah, because Lilith Fair is Chillith Fair. Chilith so we had another event at this like coffee shop parking lot. And then I was like, okay, I have to focus on thesis. And so someone else kind of took it over. And then they were still having events up until before the pandemic. And I think there has been a call to try and get it going again. But it was just so cool to see it kind of take off. And even after I had bowed out just the way that it continued and there was like so much excitement I love that I love that yeah and that you can I think access those places through things like performance art that are really really powerful because it's not like you do have to run away from home and become a lady wrestler (laughs) you can experiment with it within this context. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about interactive art is that you can try something on for size and just see how it hits you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think trying to think of how it actually incorporates back into my work, but I'm interested in these kind of archetypes Mm. and kind of, I guess, figures of historical figures of women. I'm organizing a print exchange for SGCI about witches. Nice. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of how it's channeled its way back in because people would just kind of take this trope. Um, I was, my first character was a cougar named, what is it? I'm blanking on it. I can see it up here. Mrs. Robinson, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. And so she came in, but it was trying to, because I feel like the cougar is always looked down upon. uh, And I was like trying to take it back and be like, she's actually this like really powerful woman who can, who's like interested in younger men, but also trying to turn it into something funny. Mm -hmm. Um, So instead of the ring girls, I had ring boys um, who would carry me (laughs) in. And then one of my signature moves was, oh, and also thinking of, aging because i read a lot about how like as women age they're seen as like less relevant or yeah and so trying to take that back (laughs) and in a funny way so one of her moves was i had these stockings stuffed into my bra and i had painted like huge nipples on the ends of them Uh this was to pull them out so i had these kind of long (laughs) saggy 
and then whirl them around and hit my opponent with them. I also had fake teeth that I pulled out to attack my opponents with. Yeah, it was just really fun to, to play with those characters and with these kind of tropes and archetypes and try to take them back or think about them in different ways. Yeah, I don't know if you know Jenny Robinson. She's a, a British-born, but she's lived all over the world. She's a printmaker. And she's definitely one of my spirit guides in the the process of of female aging because she's in her 60s and she'll say things she'll be wearing like you know big glasses and sparkly shoes and she'll just say something like well I became invisible when I turned 50 so I need to wear things now to make myself seen <laughs> you know? Amazing. yeah yeah and so it's 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 all in there and I think it has there's social consequences too but particularly real world consequences, I think, especially for artists. And I think that there's that real double standard where I think men are often considered 50 to 60 is like their prime making years. They've spent their whole life working towards this and now they have the skills and the physicality to make their magnum opi. But as we've spoken to this idea of women kind of disappearing and becoming less relevant, I think in the art world, particularly there's a lot of invisible and, and not invisible prejudice against women of a certain age. And this idea that, that no one will want to hear what you have to say, like that's real consequences for someone who makes their work and their living and their life expressing themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah and I feel like as I've I, there was I was really afraid to turn 30 mm. but then once I got over that hump I'm I'm like I want to be in my 30s forever and you know maybe ho- hopefully the 40s will be even better but I've just now I don't ever want to go back to my 20s I'm like yeah. so happier or and I guess more I just know myself better I have a kind of stronger vision of where I am and where I want to be. Yeah, I wouldn't go back. Yeah, I'm 39, so I'm looking at the next yeah. decade jump. And I the only thing I can say that's that's really different for me, it's just it truly has just gotten better and better. Like not for all the tea in China could I yeah. go back to being any time in my 20s and and even in like my early 30s too. But for me, the only thing that really is a little bit bittersweet is like when you were talking about safety in wrestling, right? I was thinking about how I was shocked that I did not hurt myself yeah. <laughs> um, when I was in the, the ring with Lars in part because I used to be a professional dancer and so in my mind, I am still 22 and I can still do things with my body that I could at 22. And when you're 39, that's just not true. And so I was really in there really consciously thinking about like, do not try and do a high kick right now. Do not try and do a roll right now. <laughs> you know, like, like go into this really realistically. <laughs> and so I think that the, 
the, the physical limitations, and I'm I'm really fortunate in which they they're they're, they're mild, mm-hmm. but they're there, and I think that that's that's the bittersweetness. But internally, in terms yeah. of mind and spirit, it, I, I think it's just going to keep getting better. That's my that's my yeah. goal. <laughs> <laughs> but I was so impressed with the participation at Rumpa. Um, I was had no idea that that many people were like, people are probably just going to want to thumb wrestle. And then everyone was in the ring all of the time. <laughs> yeah. We're like, we didn't even need to come up with our own skits because it was fine. <laughs> I think I, I love that. I love that for printmakers. I was a little bit worried that printmakers, as we've spoken to in this chat, printmaking is so process-based and there is that removal of self from the artwork. And so I actually was having your thoughts in which I was like, oh, like this performance art isn't going to be a print person thing. And I was totally underestimated our people. I apologize. Like everyone was in there throwing each other around. I think the only arm wrestling that happened was when my <laughs> wonderful co-host Ronaldo Hil Zambrano challenged my- his challenged his old professor <laughs> to arm wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great too. So yeah, that's yeah. I, I think that, that that all definitely intersects with these really, really interesting ideas that you're getting at about space and gender and craft and value. And I feel like you're in a really interesting part of the world to be looking at that. And yeah, I'm glad we were able to steal you away from Canada to yeah. <laughs> come make work here with in the States. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely been interesting. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything in that history and traditions, because I know we were talking about Shakers, which I associate more with Northeast mm-hmm. and a little bit down into the South, but definitely not like deep South, like Alabama, Mississippi so much, but I could be wrong. Is there anything that you've kind of discovered? I know you're recently there in this new life. You're you're in this 10-year track position now, so you're, you're probably settled in for a while that you think might come from this new life change. Well, the funny thing about where I live in Oxford, Mississippi, is it's the home of Faulkner, William Faulkner. So it's like super Southern Gothic, which is, I think it's funny because when I first moved to the South, I was really kind of investing in Southern Gothic and reading Faulkner. And now, not that I've moved away from it, but I started to look at these kind of like visionary artist spaces because I've been making a lot of work recently about yard art and like more I guess more sculptural work with like uh-huh. really and weather vanes and wind socks and so yeah coming to this town that is so just I guess like identifies itself with Faulkner Faulkner's grave is right around the corner from my house I literally live behind a graveyard which was not planned and then we got there, I was like oh okay um <laughs> I didn't really get a chance to think about how I would feel about living so close to a graveyard but it's fine <laughs> then I have somebody noticed this little I made a stained glass piece of a coffin mm-hmm. and so that is right on the window where you see the graveyard and then I can walk to Faulkner's grave Roanoke his home is really close by so yeah I'm wondering if even though not that I turned away from it but I wonder if it will just like come back because (laughs) yeah 
Faulkner is everywhere here. That's so interesting. Wow. Yeah, it really feels like, I don't know what the visual art equivalent of like the piano playing you would be. Yeah. But it feels that way a little bit from what you're describing that you're you've just moved in next to William Faulkner. Yeah. <laughs> so southern. Yeah. And we were like, not that I mean, Georgia's very southern, but each state has a kind of like different southern flavor. So mm-hmm. I am trying to figure out what is <laughs> Mississippi because I'm in North Mississippi. I'm an hour from like an hour and a half from Memphis. So there's a lot of Elvis stuff here mm-hmm. too. Like Northland, I went to see, I call it Elvis's baby house in Tupelo, <laughs> um, Mississippi. And so, and it's very country. Like a lot of my students ride horses and go hunting. So I'm trying to, I guess, calibrate my <laughs> culture meter to be like, okay, where am I? Because when I was in Mobile, I was only 45 minutes from Ocean Springs. Yeah. Southern Mississippi. And I guess that's maybe more what I'm used to. This is even a different climate. It's similar to Athens, Georgia, where it actually gets kind of cold, less Spanish moss. Yeah. I'm kind of like where I'm I'm close to Arkansas. (laughs) When I was coming here for the interview, I was like, where even am I in (laughs) the country right now? Yeah. In terms of like how I thought about the South. I'm a big Orville Peck fan. And, oh my God, I love Orville Peck. And uh, I'm almost like a little jealous that you're in Mississippi because he's got the, the great song on his new his new album about Take Me Home to Mississippi, you know? Oh, I don't know if I've heard that one. It's, I think the song is Daytona Sand. Okay. But yeah, it's the, he, he ends it just singing like, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I, like over and over again. And yeah, I do love listening to songs about the area because I feel like there's a lot, there's all the Delta blues around here. So there's lots of songs about Mississippi. And there's also, they call, maybe they call Mississippi it, but Oxford, they've been referring to it as the Velvet Ditch, <laughs> where it's a soft place to land, but it's hard to crawl out. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm intrigued. I'm super intrigued. I, I, yeah, it sounds really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, can you please tell us where people can find you outside of going to Oxford, Mississippi? Where can they find you in the in the digital space? So in the digital space, I have a website, uh, com, and then also on Instagram at kalinastasiak. Beautiful. I will put links to those in the show notes. And yeah, I'm really excited we got to have this conversation. This was a really fun one. And I I love your work and I'm really excited to see what you do next. Thank you. (laughs) If you liked today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help support our podcast and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts with past guests. But the very best thing you can do to support this podcast is listen rate, follow, and share with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week. My guest will be Tosin Oyinyi. We talk about what it's like to be one of the few active contemporary Nigerian printmakers, his passion for uplifting pre-colonial Nigerian culture, and how he hopes to keep traditions alive through his lino cuts. 
you won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you in two weeks.